I'm really anxious to see what Mary remembers, too. <laughs> For those of you that, uh, that get to do this on occasion, I don't know about you, but I know about me. And I am right now standing here wondering why I'm not at the Al-Anon conference in Sedgwick. <laughs> and I do it all the time. I, um, I, I say yes and... Um, and then I wonder why, and at the end of this talk, maybe I will, I will remember. Um, I need to, first of all, uh, I know we have one housekeeper here, but I'm going to be the second one. And I really want to, I want to thank the committee for inviting us. Um, they have been absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Donna, for in inviting me initially and reminding me that this was the weekend of the Al-Anon uh, convention in Sedgwick, and so I made a decision at that time and, uh, and said yes to this. And I want to, I, I guess I'm not going to get involved in naming all the names because I might forget somebody, but what I know is that all of the committee members that I have met have been just wonderful to us. I, um, I appreciate it so much. And, uh, and again, I, I thank you all. This, this uh, roundup has been a real experience for me. I had not attended um, an Alcoholics Anonymous uh, cooperating with a professional community meeting, and I did that on, on Thursday. And I was uh, so delighted, you know, when the, when the chairperson talked about, uh, you know, although we have no opinion on outside issues, we all have opinions. And... One of the things that I am known for, <laughs> I have opinions, and um, and God has a sense of humor because he, you know, he let me be, uh, you know, chairperson of the uh, Alberta Northwest Territories Assembly, where you are not allowed to have an opinion. <laughs> I am grateful. Uh, so thank you again to the committee. My name is Mary, and I am a, a very grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Hi. Thank you. Um, I've, I've been in a really strange place this entire week. I've, I've, I guess when my husband and I had some lunch, I had to come to some some terms with myself and admit that I'm, I'm in a wee bit of a depression, which I, I have every now and again. And uh, part of my disease certainly is denial, and I would rather not be there, and I would rather not have been so uh, teary all week, and I would really rather not have had a lot of things happen to me all of this week. But you know what? I'm an Al-Anon, and I can share that with you. And I know that... I have no idea what it is that I'm going to talk about because, quite frankly, Tom did a good job this time. <laughs> and he shared wonderfully and beautifully about, uh, about what it was like. But I know that what I have to share with you is, uh, is my story, uh, which is the only thing that I have. Al-Anon's third tradition states that the only requirement for membership in the Al-Anon family groups is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. And I am the granddaughter, the daughter, 
the niece, the aunt, the sister, the wife, and the mother of alcoholics. No doubt I qualify, you know. You can't tell me I don't. I do. But what I guess I I need for you to know is that I never knew that because I think that a part of my disease is denial and that may come from the fact that I did grow up in a normal alcoholic home. (laughs) And maybe some of you did too. And I'll share a little bit about that alcoholic home with you. My father was the alcoholic and he was a really interesting man. He... uh, he was what was known as a man with potential. And uh, I guess my mom never really keyed in on that. She didn't like drinking and she didn't like dancing. She was Baptist. There was a lot of things that, uh, that she didn't go along with, but she married this wonderful, intriguing man who had a, um, a knowledge of many different languages. He had a musical ability both to sing and play instruments, He was an amazing person, and he was alcoholic. And he also suffered from a lot of the other isms that sometimes alcoholics suffer from. And our home was filled with violence. It was always very, very loud and noisy when my dad would get home from one of his um, adventures. And I can remember many times as a small child waking up in the middle of the night and hearing the thumping and the bumping and the crashing into the walls and wondering uh, what was going on and understanding that fear, hearing the yelling, not knowing what was going on, and getting up in the morning and seeing the hole that would have appeared in the wall over the night and remembering again, asking my mother, what had happened, what had gone on the night before, and having my mother say to me, nothing, you must have been dreaming. And it's the start, I believe, that, that happens so often in people that, uh, that come from alcoholic homes, is the, um, the taking away of what you've heard, what you've seen, and what you feel. You know, you're told that none of that thing None of those things really happened. And so you start kind of backing off on it. I knew what I had seen. I knew what I had heard. And I certainly knew what I felt. But it was never, ever validated for me. My mom, um, I need to say too that my father, part of his disease was uh, where he got into some uh, sexual abuse. There was three daughters in that house. And... um, for whatever reason, he kind of worked his way through from the oldest to the youngest. I was the youngest. And there was something that I knew that was not right. And even though I was the youngest and this had been happening to my sisters, nothing was ever talked about. And again, for whatever reason, I talked about it. And I told my mom. And I knew then that I was the reason that we were no longer a family. I knew then that I was the reason that my father had to go to jail 
and that we wouldn't have a father figure in our house any longer, and that my mom, who had never had to work, now had to work to raise these three girls. And I understood that it was my fault. People have said to me, Mary, you are so fortunate that those kinds of things happened to you, but that your mom listened to you, dealt with it, it stopped, your father was taken out of your house, and so on and so forth. And I guess that's true. I guess that is somewhat true. But I know that what I was left with, in that once that episode was done, and the time in the courts was done, and my dad was sent away to Prince Albert, we never talked about it again. We never talked about it again. And it was not until years later when I came into Al-Anon and I got to do the wonderful gift of the steps and going through uh, the fourth step and going through the fifth step and coming to understand what that not being allowed to feel had done to me. I had never been allowed to heal from that. It was, a, this, is what was ha- this is what happened. It's been dealt with it. Now get on with your life. And that's just the way it was. And I did. I got on with my life. And, and again, I think what I took from that home was you don't ever get too, too close to anybody. You know, I participated in life. I participated in school. I would be an active member in my school when I got out into the workforce. I loved working and I did a good job at that. What I didn't know then that I know now is that I never allowed anybody to get real close to me. It was that setup already of I had huge trust issues and certainly with men and I didn't want anybody to be too close. So I did what so many of us do prior to Al-Anon is that I gave you a little bit and I gave you a little bit and I gave you a little bit but nobody ever got the whole story of who Mary was because if you ever put it all together you might not like me you might not accept me and so it was my way of keeping safe and then on a thanks on a Thanksgiving oh god I got my whole holidays mixed up here oh maybe it was Thanksgiving Thanksgiving for New Year's Eve um, and I was going to a New Year's Eve party with the fellow that was uh, I was engaged to, to Mary who was kind of a quiet um, boring <laughs> guy <laughs> and I went to the New Year's Eve party and it was a non-drinking function because it was uh, you know in the hall where my mom worked it was adjacent to the hospital where she, where she was at And it was a non-drinking function which suited me just fine because it seemed to me that, you know, people that I knew and loved, they would take a drink and all of a sudden they'd be different people. So if there was no liquor involved, that was just fine with me. And off we went. And we were having a wonderful, quiet, boring time when a, a girlfriend of mine who came and brought some not quiet and not boring friends of hers to this do. And I guess what I remember of that night is, is it went from, you know, very quiet and organized, serene kind of a thing to 
uh, tables crashing and chairs falling over and, you know, people being worried that there was going to be some babies being born too soon, you know, in the hospital next to us because of all of this commotion. And, um, and I got to meet my husband, or to be, the husband-to-be that night. And I need to tell you that it was not him that was causing all of that commotion and so on. It was a very good friend of his. And he was one of these wonderful guys who dealt with that, who looked after it, who got that guy out, who kind of, you know, ta-da, da-da, he saved the day. And the next thing I knew, it was midnight, and there was this kind of a ball in the middle of the room, and I don't know where my fiancé was, but I got to really meet Tom. And uh, we just, there we were. And then midnight was done, and he was gone, and I was gone, and I carried on with my life, and phone calls started happening, and... and, uh, what I realize now is that my mother fell in love with him first. You know, she just, there, you know, there was just something about him that uh, really endeared her to him, or him to her. And, uh, of course, years later, I got to laugh about, you know, remembering who she chose. And <laughs> anyway, Mom really encouraged the relationship, forgetting all of the time that I was wearing an engagement ring on my finger and that, to me, at that point, kind of meant something to me. But there was things that happened, and, uh, you know, back then, uh, there was a November the 22nd. 1963, and some people, you know, relate to this last September 11th issue where you know where you were on the day. And uh, November the 22nd, 1963 was, of course, the day that uh, JFK was killed. And I was at work, and my fiancé phoned me and, and told me, and we stopped, and we watched it on the black and white television. And I can remember a bunch of thoughts going through my head over that. And I had no understanding of it at that time. But I can remember at the end of uh, that November that I said to this guy who I'd been engaged to, um, I can't go through with a wedding in the spring. I cannot go through with a wedding in the spring. I need to travel. I need to find myself. You know, I need to do all of these things, which was not an unusual thing for girls to do at that time. And so the engagement was, was done. I never did do any traveling because now I seemed to be home when he phoned and we got out, we went out together and there was something so different and so exciting (laughs) about him that I fell in love with him and we had so much to look forward to. You know, we had so much to look forward to and, and we got married and we were going to, we just had such big plans and off we were going to go. I don't know at that particular time if I had any concerns about his drinking. I do know that we had at our wedding, we did not have a dance. That was on my insistence because I know what happens at wedding dances. I don't know if what I saw him drinking at that time had any effect on me, but I do know that I was already into control and didn't know it. We got married and we uh, were in Edmonton for a while and we took a transfer and we ended up in Grand Prairie in the north. And Tom talked somewhat about, you know, his uh, bond feeling. 
I had no idea. I had no idea what Bond's feeling was. And I just know that he did a lot of it. <laughs> and he never seemed to be in real good shape when he came home. But this particular time, and it's important to me, this particular time, because what he had said to me was at the end, on the Saturday night of this Bond's field, there was going to be a banquet and a dance. And it had seemed to me like it had been a long, long time since I had been out of the house and been able to go to a dance. And I put so much on that one little night. And I really wanted to go and I was ready and had the babysitter, the whole thing. And he came home in the afternoon from Bondsfield, And he walked in the door. And this just feeling came over me that we were not going to be going to the banquet and the dance. Because as he's going up the stairway, the clothes are kind of being dropped off of him. And he goes upstairs and he passes out on the bed. Buck naked, I might add. I don't know what the point of that was. Maybe he was warm. I don't know. <laughs> I know I was hot. <laughs> And once again, I guess a little control came in, although I certainly at that time would never have called it control. And I knew that at 6 o'clock we were going to be at that banquet. I knew. And so what I did was I went down the hall to the bathroom and I put the plug in the bathtub and I started running the cold water. One of the things that I loved about Grand Prairie was is that you could turn that tap on and it was instant. It was ice-cold water. You didn't have to worry about letting it run for any length of time. It was cold. But I let it run. And I filled it up. And I went down to the bedroom. And I hauled him. And I don't know how I did it to this day, but I literally dragged him down that hallway, got him into the bathtub, and proceeded to dunk him. He says that I tried to drown him. That is, that is not true. I had heard at one time that if a person was in that kind of a state, that a little cold water, you know, could kind of bring them out of it. And um, I was brought up Baptist, so I knew that a little Duncan wouldn't hurt him either. You know? <laughs> We went to the banquet. <laughs> but what I got to learn years later when I got back to that little part of my life was is that I truly believed that there was a problem that day. I truly believed that there was a problem. That he had gone off to this bond ceiling and he had kind of lost touch with what the whole goal of the day was and that was to come home, take me to the banquet. <laughs> and the dance and he had forgotten about that that was the problem and he had a little bit too much to drink I had the solution and that was the water and we got off to, to the banquet and what he did that night was he just drank water so you see in my sick little mind a problem a solution and I was quite happy with the ending because he drank water, he didn't get any, you know, 
too much drunker. I had a good time. That's it with that. Now we're going to carry on again. And I tell you that because it's important for me to remember that. I didn't know the word control. I had no idea that that is what I was trying to do. You know, he had something in mind and I had something different in mind and, I, you know, it, was, it became battle of wills. And I, that just carried on with our marriage. We moved out of the north and, uh, in, and into Edmonton. And again, uh, you know, we got invo- I got involved in the, in the community. He was on the road, so he wasn't around much. And so I got involved in our community. And I loved that. I, I loved the feeling of being able... Um, to do something that I thought made a difference. It was a brand new uh, community, nothing was there, and we started it right from scratch and worked hard, and I felt good about it. And so this awards night came, and yes, I did. I, I invited him to come along, and I wanted him to be there. And he, and he came. And it always amazed me, you know, when he was um, on the road, I, I had no idea of what was going on. I had no idea of what was going on. I only saw the end result, you know, when he got home. I didn't realize that he was so hungover from the week or the two weeks or the three weeks that he had been away from home. He would be exhausted from trying to keep up, you know, the drinking and the late nights and all of that kind of thing. I just thought, you know, he's away from home, uh, working hard to make sure that we have a good life, you know, this house and the nice things and all of that. And that's what I believed. And uh, I thought this night too, you know, maybe it was just a bad night. Maybe he hadn't had enough sleep and so on and so forth. But he had come. And then after about an hour or so, he got bored with the whole thing. And he got a little nasty and he wanted to leave. And I said, you know, go ahead and leave. I'll be home later. And once again, that was that kind of a night where I just uh, carried on doing whatever. And I walked home with, with the neighbors who I had stayed with. And I walked in the house, and there he was. And I know that he had done exactly what he needed to do. I didn't know it at the time. But he got to have the right amount of drinks. The right amount of time had gone by, and that green-eyed jealousy thing that I hadn't seen for a while came back into our lives. And the only way that I can, you know, describe that entire night is that it was the longest night of my life. And the next morning, when I got up, and I had to face my kids, and I got to hear from my kids, and this, this is important to me again, this is where I feel like I started to pass on this disease that I didn't even know I had. When my kids are looking at me and telling me what they heard, what they saw in the morning, what they felt. And I did that thing that my mother had done to me and that I had never, never would have had the same intention on ever doing to my children when I said to them, it was a nightmare. It must have been a nightmare. That must have been what woke you up. 
nothing happened here last night. And it's so hard, you know, when you're looking at these little eyes and they kind of are staring back at you as those little eyes that you had at your mom. And something happened to me and I had never really felt guilt and shame before. But I remember feeling guilt and shame that night, that morning, when I passed on to my kids. That was the start of what uh, my son was to, to have a nervous stomach from that night. We had to move because that's what happens. I didn't want to move. I was quite comfortable in the, in the area that we were in, had done a lot of work, met a lot of friends, and felt comfortable and relatively safe. But we had to move, and so we did. And I kept convincing myself, because that is my denial as well, you know, that that was then, that was yesterday, tomorrow is going to be great. Tomorrow is going to be different. And moving out to Spruce Grove, it's going to be different. And I really hung on to that. And what I need you to know is, is that it was. He was now off of the road. And he was at home. And now I got to enjoy seeing him on a daily basis. And there was no more putting it off to the hard work, the, you know, the being away on the road, that kind of thing. Because now I got to see what was going on. My anxiety started. I didn't understand about fear. I don't know that I could have put it to fear, but I knew about anxiety because somebody had placed that in my head. Particularly when I was at the hockey rink and I would have had this big long conversation with him prior to going and say, you know, please don't drink tonight. Please don't drink tonight. Not around the kids. You're a good hockey coach. You don't need to drink around the kids. And he would make me the promise that he wouldn't. And then I'd go down between the periods and I'd start to go down and there he'd be. And I'd just get the glimmer of the coat going up and the bottle coming out and the drink going back. And I would feel myself, my heart starting to race, my throat starting to close off. Sometimes I would pass out, sometimes I wouldn't. But what I learned was is that if you carry a brown paper bag with you and you start to have an anxiety attack, you can breathe into the brown paper bag and it'll stop you from passing out and you'll be okay. You can slow down that breath and you can... And the other thing is, your explanation to everybody else around you is, if your son was a goaltender at this level of hockey, you'd have some anxious moments too. And I thought they believed me. I truly thought that they believed me. You know, it wasn't until I got into to Al-Anon that I found out how many people absolutely knew what was going on in our home. A lot of times, not because of, of my husband, but because of my reactions to things. And I didn't know that until I got into Al-Anon. Things just kept getting... Um, harder and, and harder um, because if, if 
you know, if you're in Al-Anon or, in your, or if you're like me, um, I am perfectly fine with anything right up until the time I notice it. <laughs> and now I'm noticing it. I'm noticing it all of the time. And my obsession on him and how much he's drinking and when he's drinking and all of the things that happen is now starting to fill my life. Where I can be at work and I can be doing what I, what I do. And all of a sudden, there he is. I never used to invite him there. He just would show up in my head. And it would be, what's it going to be like tonight? Is it going to be okay? If it's going to be okay, for how long is it going to be okay? You know, is there going to be enough money for the mortgage? What about this? What about that? My mind was in a constant turmoil of wondering what was going to happen. I was constantly on the five-year plan. I either lived in yesterday or I was on the five-year plan of what could, would, shoulda, was going to happen. And that was changing on a daily basis, but I didn't realize that. You know, it depended on, on where I was at any given moment, and on any given moment I was not in a good place. The obsession, my obsession on him just took over my life. I tried so hard in so many ways. <laughs> and for those of you who are non-alcoholic and you try to drink with an alcoholic, God bless you. <laughs> you know, I tried. You know, I got fat. It just <laughs> Because I would have a drink and then I'd get so hungry, you know, and he would never eat when he drank, you know. He was always wanting to just drink. Have I been on too long or what? <laughs> oh, just got the moment, okay. God, but, uh, hmm. Come on back, God. <laughs> anyway, um, the hardest thing for me was always keeping up with him. Not just in drinking, but when he was drinking and if we were, you know, at the lake and then he would take off and I'd try to catch him because I knew that if I was with him, he wouldn't drink so much. I had all kinds of suggestions for when we went out to parties. And what I would say to him, I would sit him down and I would say to him, okay, this is what we're going to do tonight. And, um, you know, there's not going to be any drinking the afternoon of the party. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the party at 7 o'clock, and then about 7.30, somewhere in there, you know, we probably will be offered a drink, and we'll have a drink. And then, you know, if I want to have a second one, then, you know, we'll just... I had it all figured out. I could never see a problem with that, you know, but he never would pay attention. He would never pay attention to me, and I just knew that if he would pay attention to me, that our life would be so much better. I did not know until I got to Al-Anon 
how much store I put in that bottle. I thought, you know, the magic bottle. If I can just keep it away from him long enough and then just kind of give him what I think he needs. Two drinks. Perfect. Two drinks. I could get him to do almost anything. Darn close. But God help us all when he went over it. And he got to the point where he didn't want to play the game with me anymore. He did not want to play the game with me anymore. And he just went ahead and did whatever it was that he wanted to do. And I just got sicker and sicker because somehow I'm thinking that I can control this. You know, that I can cure him if he would just listen to me. And that summer came and I can remember getting a phone call at work from Visa Corporation in Vancouver. And he, Tom didn't talk about it this afternoon, but uh, he had some pretty grandiose ideas. Now, you know, some of the alcoholics in the room probably can't identify with that, but this little hockey team that he started off coaching, he, uh, he ended up charting, chartering a plane <laughs> to, to take them to San Jose, California. <laughs> he put it on our visa. <laughs> when you're the last of the big time spenders I'll tell you you just don't have a problem with that kind of thing except that our visa never had that kind of limit he had a little help from a couple of other friends of his who were well one isn't the program now but uh, anyway we had an interesting life visa phoned me and they said um, they started really giving me a hard time about this and I said uh, no no more. No more. My name is not on that visa anywhere. No. I said, then I thank you not to ever give me a call again. His name's on it. He deals with it. I made a decision not to cover checks anymore. I made a decision not to run around town and cover up. And where did that come from? Where did that come from? I had a friend whose husband was definitely an alcoholic, an alcoholic of the real kind. <laughs> and she was a potential Al-Anon like I have never seen before. This woman was crazy. She was a sick woman. You know, and I was always so happy that I could be there for her. I was such a good friend to her. And the two of us would commiserate over these people that we were married to. <laughs> Somehow she got him to AA, and she went to Al-Anon. Now, she just went to one meeting, but she got the cure, I guess. <laughs> she went to the right meeting. <laughs> and she got the cure. But I will be forever grateful to her when she shared that cure with me, and I had no idea of what it meant. But she told me that what she heard that night was that she was not responsible for his drinking. And she shared that with me. And so I took that to a whole new playing field. <laughs> and then I, I, you know, this episode with Visa and we carry on. And what I find out about her after this one trip to Al-Anon and that little message is that they still want to come out and visit us at the lake. 
And what this fellow apparently has learnt in Alcoholics Anonymous is that uh, you drink light beer only. (laughs) And so, instead of bringing, uh, you know, his whiskey, he brought two flat packs of light beer. I don't remember ever being real impressed with AA uh, (laughs) off of what he said. And even all of that aside, they would sit, they would do whatever they would have to do. And I mean, eventually it would come to, the bottles would come out. You know, they'd get down to what they really wanted to do. This is what ticked me off. When she would stand up and say, I am not responsible. (laughs) She'd get in her car and go home. Leave me with two of them. Now I'm not real impressed with Al-Anon. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I, uh, I remember those, those messages that were given to me. And I started using that uh, I am not responsible. And, and it, it seemed to somewhat help through that summer. And then it wasn't helping anymore. It wasn't helping anymore. And I had got to that, that place where I felt, no matter what happened, I just felt helpless and hopeless. And I had not been to that place, because I know from where I came from, and I never became a victim. I was a survivor. And I had not felt that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness, like I had when I just didn't feel like he would listen to me when I had the answer. And I looked across the fire at him and I said, and I still remember this as a wonderful, wonderful evening or this two minutes or whatever. You know, I I, I can remember feeling so good about doing it. You know, hon, if you'll go to AA, I'll go to Al-Anon. You know, that just sounds so kind of... Martyrish, I don't know. What <laughs> there are words for it, but at the time I thought it was the right thing. And, uh, and again, I remember exactly the look that I got back and the telling me that if I wanted to go to Al-Anon, to go ahead because I was crazy. And all that did for me that night was totally affirm for me what I knew. Because the insanity had just completely taken over my life. I didn't know it was called alcoholism. I just thought he drank at the wrong time with the wrong people. And he just, if he would listen to me, it would be better. But he's now telling me I'm crazy and I know I am. And there's no hope. And even though I had said that I would go to Al-Anon, and even though he has now given me permission, (laughs) did I go? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because although I felt there and I was at the bottom, I thought, I just knew there was maybe one more thing. And the one more thing that got to me in my head was the age of my children, and it wasn't going to be that long before they weren't going to be in home anymore. And so what I needed to do, 
that five-year plan could condense a little bit, and I needed to sock away as much money as I could. Because my kids used to say to me all the time, Mom, why are you here? Why are you here? Why do you put up with that? Let's just leave. And isn't that the wonderful advice that so many people that have never lived with alcoholism, I mean, they did, but they had no idea of the consequences of that. And why I never shared anything of what was going on in my home with anybody else. Because if you haven't lived in, that, in the disease of alcoholism, you don't know that feeling. And I was too afraid to leave. That fear was greater than the fear of staying, regardless of not knowing from day to day what was going to happen in that house. But for whatever reason, I didn't have the faith anymore or the confidence anymore in myself. Key, myself. Because I had become so out of touch with any kind of God or higher power. You see, he had left me a long time ago at the age of five. I was right out of touch. And I had done real well, I thought, on my own steam, doing it my way. And yet here it was, and nothing was changing. And then he went to AA. And I was just happy, joyous, and free, you know. <sighs> Again, I, I, you know, for anybody here that's an Al-Anon or a potential Al-Anon who's, who's got somebody out there still drinking, God, get into Al-Anon and stay. Get seniority. You know, get seniority. <laughs> my only regret, you know, my only regret that I, I didn't listen to those people, you know, 10 and 15 and, and, uh, and 20 years before I actually got to Al-Anon that told me that I didn't have to live like that anymore, that there was a place for me. They told me. That message was given to me. But I didn't believe that it could happen for me. And so I had to just keep on doing what I was doing and getting sicker and sicker. And he went and became, you know, I'm trying really hard to say this without swearing. He became... Uh, kind of on a pink cloud and um, whenever he would speak to us um, he would not quite be on the floor he would slightly levitate <laughs> and he would always look at us in a very kindly way <laughs> and say to us you know I don't drink anymore who are you going to blame now And my children and I would leave and get in the car and talk about that person in our life. <laughs> because you know what? We had been through this before. Having somebody sober or not drinking in our house was not a new event. And we all of us knew where it was going to lead. And so there was no more of the get excited and this is going to be wonderful and AA is the next best thing. 
we were just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so what we did was what we had learned how to do, and that was we protected ourselves and we stayed away from him. And then he invited me to this AA open meeting, a Christmas meeting. And I felt like I had to go, you know, because there are some things that you just need to do in order to support your spouse. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I wasn't there either. I mean, we were past disliking. We were past hating. We were into nothingness, indifference. But I'm out there in the community, and I mean, if he's going to do this, although I hope nobody in the community really knows, you know, there might be somebody who is somebody at this AA meeting, and so I got to get myself dressed up, and I got to put myself together, and I got to go to this meeting with him to show support. So I go, and I go down the stairs, and da 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 da, and there's people there that have been waiting for me for a whole long time. And this guy from AA stands up, and he starts to share his story. <coughs> In our Al-Anon literature, it talks about you may not like all of us. (laughs) I didn't know that then, but I knew that night. I didn't like all of you. I didn't like how he stood up there and he talked about things that I didn't believe he should talk about. My mom is sitting there, and she is looking at this guy and saying, Should he be talking about his mother like that? (laughs) And these horrible things, the family secrets are coming out. And these people are laughing. (laughs) For those of you that have been there, you know what that's like. You don't get it. (laughs) I didn't want to be there. What I didn't understand is is that as they're all laughing that I noticed that they still had tears. And all I felt was what I was feeling on my face and that was the tears. Because I just wasn't that far away from everything that that man was talking about. I had not been given any kind of an opportunity yet to deal with the hurt and the pain and the resentment and all of that good stuff. I had no idea that night that those people and that laughter was that first glimmer of recovery. There is some healing taking place when you hear that laughter. And I didn't know it that night. I still was in a place where I wasn't fully feeling my emotions. And what I have come to learn in Al-Anon is that you can't heal what you can't feel. And I got a chance to do that later on. But we sat there that night and I just wanted out of there. You know, I just wanted out of there. And then they had this broad (laughs) stand-up. And she made a big deal about being a grateful Al-Anon member. I didn't know what an Al-Anon member really was. I only had that one experience. Don't tell me that you are grateful that you are married to an alcoholic because what I know is you're starting right off lying. It's what I believed. It's what I believed. She said she was grateful to have married an alcoholic. 
And that night I couldn't go there with her. And I just wanted out of there. And I thought, you know, I don't think I want to have anything to do with those people. And so I didn't for a while. And then another New Year's Eve happened just shortly after. We got to go to a function. And I got to watch some AA members and some Al-Anon members interacting and, you know, throughout this evening. And I'm a great observer, you know, and I listen to what people are saying and I look at their eyes and I get this sense and this seemed really real to me. And some Al-Anon members talked to me and on that Monday I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. Three of them took me. There was something about, um, you know, not being sure if I would actually show up. And they took me into Edmonton because we all knew I was far too important to go to Spruce Grove. (laughs) (laughs) I'm grateful to the people at that meeting and to the many, many meetings that I have been to since. Because what I got to learn in the meetings was about that healing, about the laughter, about how to get to the place of acceptance, you know, to understand about that obsession that I had with those alcoholics in my life. You know, I I was obsessed by them, the anxiety attacks and so on had become on a daily basis. I have not had an anxiety attack, that fear, since my first Al-Anon meeting. Somehow I know that there is a God that is in a higher power of my understanding and and this was a place that I had to get to that I realized years ago when I had felt deserted and when I had tried different times to have some kind of a connection with a God is that what I was trying to do was I was trying so hard to have the kind of relationship that my grandfather seemed to have with the God of his understanding. You know, he was a, it was a come and go with me kind of a thing. And he would talk to him and he, he had this spirituality about him and he was a wonderful man. And I was trying for that through him. And what I got to believe and to understand, and, and it's a gift that you've given me, is to how to have a God of my understanding, a higher power who is with me on a daily basis except when I forget to invite him in. I have learned a long time ago that my higher power is a gentleman and never comes any place that he's not invited. And I try to invite him in on a daily basis. And things have been so much better for me. I can uh, relate, I don't know how many stories and miracles and so on that has happened to me in Al-Anon. But I think what's important is uh, a gift that I was given early, and that was the opportunity to be an Alateen co-sponsor. I didn't have enough time in, and Al-Anon has a few little rules about that, to be a sponsor, but I did have enough time in to be a co-sponsor with somebody that had some time in. And I got to do that uh, for three years. The Alateens were able to share and to give back to me something of an understanding that I don't know that I would have ever gotten without that opportunity of service. It helped me to come to terms with the things that had happened 
and how I got to take responsibility for the things that happened between me and my children, of how when you are so obsessed with somebody else's drinking that it is very difficult to be there and to be present for your children. And I had to come to accept and understand that I had huge amends to make to my kids because of that emotional abandonment. You know, there was just too many times when I was not there for them because my mind was wherever he was. I didn't know that I couldn't do anything different about that. Al-Anon, you know, has just been a gift in so many ways, and I am grateful to those Alateens for helping me. I was an Alateen sponsor, and I watched my kids because it seemed to me that once my husband and I got involved he and her, in his AA program and, and me in my Al-Anon program, and I was working so hard, you know, trying to do the steps, trying to understand the traditions, trying to do the things that they told me to do, you know, to be of service, in Al-Anon would show the gratitude. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And my kids just, they, they seemed to, I mean, they were bad <laughs> before we got in, but then they just seemed to get this kind of freedom that said, okay, let's hit the streets and let's go. My denial was such that we would go to, uh, you know, drug information centers, that kind of thing, to get information because we wanted to be good parents. I, I didn't want my kids to be involved in drugs or anything like that, so we're going to go and we're going to get all that information. I'd always pick up the stuff on alcohol and so on, never do anything with it, but take home the pamphlets. And I need you to know that if I got into Al-Anon that our bed was on a list like this because I had all these pamphlets on my side of the bed. Oh, it was just terrible. Anyway, what I understand about my disease and the, de and the denial is I would, I would go looking for an answer for what was going on in our house, not wanting to accept what was going on in our house. I was one of these mothers. I watered my son's marijuana plants. You know, I watered his marijuana plants. <laughs> I had no idea what they were. I just would tell everybody that my son had a green thumb. <laughs> you know, I'm living in alcoholism. I am now living with somebody who is sober, trying to practice an AA program. I am now in Al-Anon. And do you think that the denial system has completely been washed away? I believe that it has because I am starting to accept the fact that these people in my life are alcoholic. I am not willing to accept what I'm seeing with my son and my daughter. So I don't know about you, but this is how I dealt with it. Instead of looking at it straight on and seeing what I was seeing, hearing what I was hearing, feeling what I was feeling, that character defect that worked so well for me for so many years came back in and what I did was this. And I looked at something else that was going on in my life because it was too hard to accept what I was seeing with my children. And I was an Al-Anon. I am so grateful to the groups, my home group and the groups that I attended at that time because when I got to a place of being willing to be honest, to share with them what was really going on with me in my life, that they helped me and they loved me through it. And they helped me to understand 
that I was loving my son to death. And when he almost got to do what he wanted to do, and that was commit suicide, and he didn't, he lived, I went back to my Al-Anon group and I said, I am so grateful. And I think that what I need to do is I need to show that. And so I'm going to assign this year to be my year of gratitude. And I can remember, you know, kind of a long timer in my group going, thank God, you know, like she... She's starting to get it. That, you you know, whatever, when you are given so much, you have to give back. You know, you have to give back. And I started showing my gratitude in, in so many ways. You know, it worked so well for that first year. I decided to keep on doing it. I decided to keep on doing it. And I find that it still works. What I, what I know today, I started off saying that I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. I truly believe that I am. I was and still am as active as I can be in my home group. You know, I have done the the positions outside of the group and had the, you know, the absolute privilege of being sent as the uh, World Service Delegate for Alberta Northwest Territories and served for three years on that panel. What a wonderful gift that that was. And I can remember being in Stepping Stones in the house and looking at this picture. And there was a picture of Bill and Lois in the middle of a gymnasium floor. And they were just standing in the middle, kind of holding on to each other. We had made a decision that Tom would not come with me. I have this thing about if I'm going to work, he's not coming to have fun. So, you know, we have this thing. And I looked at that picture and I was so filled with the gratitude of those two people and what they did to begin this for all of us. You know, and the remembrance of Lois saying it takes one to start something, but it takes many to carry it out. And I got the true feeling of of gratitude that day that, you know, what we have to do is say yes to the program. And when we do, we are given so much back. This is something that uh, I'm going to close with. And it is, it's come to, to mean a lot to me, and it seems very appropriate because of the, of the theme. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns we, what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos into order, confusion to clarity. It can turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into a friend. Gratitude makes sense of our past, brings peace for today, and creates a vision for tomorrow. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to show my gratitude.